0: Uh, if you're visiting with us today, I just want to extend that that gratefulness, that gratitude that Alan mentioned earlier. My name's Kyle, and I'm the pastor here, but I want to say thank you for visiting with us today. Uh, we are grateful for everybody who comes through those doors. We pray that while you're here, you're loved well. Uh, I suspect you will be, because the people here are very good at that. And, uh, and so we want to pray, other than that, that you enjoy your time, and that you leave blessed by the Lord today, not so much by us. Amen? Amen. So, today's fun. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3. That's where we're going to start. This is one of my favorite series that we do each year, um, probably because I just naturally like the Christmas season. I uh, have an unhealthy like for the Christmas season, probably. And uh, I enjoy these things. I'm going to try to move this so the wind doesn't The air doesn't blow everything off here. So anyway, but I really enjoy uh, everything about it. And so one of the things that we inserted into the rhythm of this church just a few years ago was the season of Advent. And the idea behind this is that we'll, as Patricia mentioned earlier, that we'll take a step back from the, the hustle and bustle that is the Christmas season in America, right? Just that cultural pressure that you have that we'll step back from that And we'll take a long, good, deep, meaningful look at Jesus Christ. And that in doing so, a lot like what we've been saying through our John series, that in seeing Him and seeing what this season means for us, uh, that we'll find life in that. And that that'll be the true life-giving thing about Christmas. If Christmas becomes about everything else, not that it can't include everything else, but that if it becomes about that Uh, If your joy rises and falls on that, ultimately, you'll walk around joyless during this season. But you and I, as believers in Christ, have the greatest reason to be joyous during this season. So Advent means coming. It means arrival. It is the season within the traditional church calendar uh, for which we are probably most familiar. Uh, It is a time set aside to just pause and reflect on the first coming of Jesus Christ, who was humbly born in a manger. And we do this, we look back and remember the first advent, while simultaneously we are looking forward to the return of Christ. And so He will come again, not so much humbly this time, He will come in full glory as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is defeated finally forever, sin and death. Amen? And this is what we hope for. So as we celebrate Advent, we're going to take a look through Scripture. We're going to walk through some Old Testament passages. It gives us a great opportunity to do that, especially since we've been so New Testament heavy here lately, and just look at some of these prophecies. Look at some of these promises from God. And so the kind of the overarching theme of this series will be from Advent, from promise to presence, where Christ is Promise, we will get to His presence in just a few weeks. So if anything is true about this time of year, it's that we need to step back and take a break. We could all use these four weeks to slow down, meditate on the birth of Jesus and what that means for us. And so that's what we're going to attempt to do with this series. Now, I want us to pray, but before I pray, I just want to mention this to you. and I, <laughs> I mention it really for the purpose of hoping to encourage you. Uh, This week for me, and I have these weeks, I don't always mention them, but I have these weeks, this week for me with this text and with this sermon has been incredibly difficult. And I don't know why, other than uh, probably just spiritual warfare. And so when we pray now, I want to pray that the Lord would do an incredible work, because I have this here Uh, But without Him, uh, we are here for nothing at all. (laughs) Might as well be at home. And so let's ask the Lord to speak to all of us, amen, as we open up His Word today. Father, we, we come humbly before You. We praise You as the One who sent Your Son to die for us on a cross. We thank You that He came first as a child, took on human form, uh, born of more humble stature probably than any of us in here. And uh, Father, that we praise you that you saw fit uh, to lower Christ in this manner, to the level of humanity, uh, to live amongst us, to breathe and to walk and to perform miracles and teach us things, uh, and then ultimately to die and to rise again so that we could find life in the name of Jesus. Father, as we approach this season, this particularly busy season of our lives, we ask now that you grant us the ability to pause, that you grant us the ability to step back and to think about, to consider Jesus Help us, Father, to see ways to create rhythms for this in our family, to create rhythms for this in our personal devotion, and ultimately to create rhythms of this pause and of this reflecting in our lives. Lord, we love you. We ask for your help now as we open your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I think in order for us to... Move forward with Advent, we need to go all the way back to the beginning. If we're going to be faithful with what Advent means, then we need to be faithful with the homework that it takes to understand why it was necessary. Now, I'll admit, kind of on the front end, the whole redemption story, the story of Christ coming, of God Himself coming down as a child in a manger to save the world, is a bit bizarre. It's a bit overwhelming to take in, and if we're honest, we don't fully comprehend or understand it. Amen? And so we're leaning on the Lord today. We're asking Him to help, but I think we need to go back and see where the need for a Savior started. Why did we need God to be born as a child, to live, to die, and to be raised again amongst us? Why did we need that. And so for some of you today, this may be your very first time, though you grew up in church all your life, this may be your very first time to encounter the story of creation and the fall and ultimately the promise that came out of that. And then for others of us, maybe this is a great reminder of our need for Jesus because of the just the level and the gravity of sin and death. And so uh, the over the, the title for today is Hope in the midst of Hopelessness. And the idea in that is this that God gives us hope in the midst of hopelessness, that He's provided hope in the midst of hopelessness. Now, a lot of us will think on hopeless, uh, think of hopelessness on a different level than what I want to present to you today. Maybe you think personally first and uh, you take an inward look first, but I'm going to ask you to take a look, uh, at humanity as a whole and the hopelessness that we experience. So I just want to read some text to you from Genesis 2 first and then Genesis 3 um, to kind of get there. Genesis two fifteen through 17 says this. It says, The Lord God took the man after he had created him, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die so god creates man he builds the he creates this garden for him to live in and he places him in it and gives him the command to work and to keep it all right to maintain it to protect it and then he gives him this command of you can touch Anything in the garden, everything in this garden is of access to you. It's, it's yours, except for this one tree. That tree, you need to stay away from. Don't eat its fruit. And so shortly after, we come to chapter 3. God has created now woman, and she's there with Adam. And we come to 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now notice how uh, Satan comes with temptation. There's always with a, a manipulation, a twisting of the word. He comes and says, Did God really say that you shouldn't eat of any tree? Right? So he's, he's trying to twist the thinking, manipulate the thinking immediately, and he does the same for us. But the serpent said to the woman, after she said, no, no, not any tree, just this one tree, because if we eat of it, we'll die. But the serpent said, he goes on to question God, he says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what he's saying to the woman is, God doesn't want you to be like him. He's, he's withholding something from you. He's keeping you from your full potential. Here you go. Eat of this. And so the woman, when she saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So Adam's there, he's instructed to work and to keep, to maintain, to protect, and he doesn't. Then the eyes of both were opened, verse 7. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I'm glad we've come a long way in our clothing. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God, "'among the trees of the garden. "'But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, "'Where are you?' "'And he said, "'I heard the sound of you in the garden, "'and I was afraid because I was naked, "'and I hid myself.' "'He said, "'Who told you that you were naked? "'Have you eaten of the tree "'which I commanded you not to eat?' "'And the man said, "'The woman whom you gave to me, "'she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, "'What is this that you have done?' And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So, here we have, the first thing I want you to write down if you're taking notes, hopelessness came when we disobeyed God. Hopelessness came into the world when we disobeyed God. Right here in Genesis 2, Genesis 3, we have the beginning of decay and destruction and death in our world. The sin of Adam is our sin too. Romans 5.12 confirms this when it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. All right, so we're all responsible for The sin of Adam. So it's your sin too. And as a result of this, God promises death as the consequence. That was his command. Do not eat of it for the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, what we see here, and if you continue the narrative, is that Adam, God doesn't walk in and say, did you eat of it? Bam! You're dead. Adam goes on to live for up to 930 years of age. All of us in here today, though we've sinned against God, we inherited the sin from Adam, we're all breathing, right? Check your neighbor make sure they're breathing. So, if that's the case, where is death in this? Where is the promise of death? Well, I think the answer is twofold. One, there is a physical death that comes for all of us at some point, right? Though God created us to live forever, to dwell with Him forever, His punishment for sin must be upheld until further notice. So we all die. There are three things in life that you can count on. Taxes, death, and Arkansas football will not win a national championship. (laughs) Merry Christmas. So, it's true that we do not agree on sports, right? But we can agree on this. Death comes for every one of us. It's not a respecter of persons. One out of every one person dies. Until the Lord comes, but for now, this is what we have. So I said a minute ago that I think the answer is twofold. First, there is a physical death. It's delayed, but it's there. We've received it. The second is God's punishment for sin brought spiritual death also to all mankind and this was immediate. Adam according to Romans 5 is our representative. As descendants of Adam, you and I have inherited his sin. We too are guilty of betraying the creator of all things. We're guilty of trading true life with God dwelling in this beautiful creation of his. We've traded it for a false hope of a better life that was promised to us by a wily, crafty serpent. Now, I think the rub of Christianity on a lot of people is that it sounds like a fairy tale. A couple of lives in a beautiful garden created by God, then they disobey Him because they were tricked by a snake. This causes them to be ashamed of their sin, to know things they shouldn't know, and so they're punished by God because they disobeyed Him. Punishment means they're banished from the garden forever to a life of physical pain and death as well as spiritual death. It does sound like a fairy tale, and I think that it doesn't make sense at times because It's God's story. I think He wrote it in a way um, for us to take notice. If it looked like every other story, would it be so meaningful? I think that it's true that we see in this story that God's ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And His plans are certainly more grand than anything we could write up on our own. I also think that we need to look no further than our own hearts to see that they're full of deceit and wickedness. Maybe you can't be honest with yourself. It's hard, I understand. How about a quick survey of the world around you? Thinking of the world around you, maybe even in your own home, maybe in uh, family members outside of that a little bit, or maybe if you drew the circle a little larger, you could look into this city or into this county or into this state or nation or world. Maybe you look and a quick survey would reveal a few things. One, does it look like this world has a bright future right now? Does it look like it has anything to offer you other than decay, destruction, and death? If we're honest, I think we all most assuredly would say no. Then I also think It's highly probable, in fact, I'm staking my whole life on this truth, that Genesis 2 and 3 are telling a very real, very true story about creation and our need for a Savior. This is the true story of humanity. I'm staking my life on it, and I know a lot of you are too. I think this is the true story of how sin and death entered the world. And I think, aren't we all now marked by decay, destruction, and death. I mean, seriously, folks, if you look around, do we not relive this story in Genesis 2 and 3, do we not relive this story every day of our lives? God, in His grace and goodness, places Adam in a garden full of good, right things for him to enjoy. He gives him access to all of it, except one tree. Just stay away from that one. And Adam, he couldn't resist. The forbidden fruit was too alluring. He couldn't work and keep that which was entrusted to him. Doesn't this sound familiar? If not, let's try it this way. God in His grace and goodness places you and I in a world full of good and right things. Grace is from above, no doubt. He places us here for us to enjoy those things. He gives us access to all of it with some guidelines and some instruction called commands, just like Adam. And like Adam, we can't resist. We can't work and keep the creation that has been entrusted to us. In other words, and I'll say these things in an effort to wake us up to the gravity of sin and death, God gives you a spouse and you can't work and keep that marriage covenant because you're too interested in what other trees may taste like. God gives you a job, and you can't work and keep it because you're too interested in doing as little as possible to get by. God gives you children, and you can't work and keep that which has been entrusted to you because you're too interested in how your children reflect you. So instead of tender care, you become abusive. God gives you relationships and friendships and you can't work and keep them because you're too interested in how those people can meet your needs so you're constantly taking and never giving. God gives you integrity and we can't work and keep it because we're too interested in ourselves and what satisfies us right now. So, using only a few examples... I think we can see clearly that we're full of deceit, we're full of wickedness, and as a result, we are natural-born self-seekers. We're always me first. And this is simply a stunning truth because all of us, every one of us, whether believer or unbeliever in here today, are experiencing the grace of God in so many ways. So many that we don't often count them. Maybe your life was once hopeless and God did some things to bring hope to your life. This is one of my favorite things about adoption and foster care. It it takes children who are full of hopelessness. They're full of worry. They're full of wonder about what will my life look like? What is my future? And it places those children in a home with people who are interested in them. They're interested in providing a better life for them. And because of sin, we have parents who aren't fit to be parents. Because of God's grace, though, and His goodness towards us, we have families stepping up to take that burden off of the children. What a beautiful, Beautiful picture of the redemption story of God saving hopeless people and giving them the title of beloved child, as we saw in John chapter 1. Now, moving back towards the track we were on, I need to say nothing more than this. For us to see that we are full of deceit and wickedness. Try to do the right thing on your own. Just try. Try no grace power, no spiritual power. Just try to do the right thing on your own. It's a hopeless effort, isn't it? isn't it? Isn't it a burden too heavy to carry? It's a burden that is no respecter of persons either. It will beat you down to the ground. It's a hopeless effort because in our natural state, we are spiritually dead as a result of what Adam and Eve have done, and so sin brought spiritual death. Sin also brought hopelessness to all of mankind. So, what does God do in response to Adam's sin? He deals out punishment, certainly. We see that the serpent will be viewed with contempt from now on. Not many of us in here like snakes for this very reason, right? We see that the woman, I'm sorry, ladies, you'll have pain in childbirth, all right? It's not your husband's fault, it's Adam's fault. Let's blame him, all right? We, We also see that a woman will have a desire to rule over her husband and her husband in an effort to combat that, he will domineer his wife, causing marriage struggles unending. We see that the man will no longer experience the abundant productivity of Eden. That what he was once entrusted to work and keep pretty easily becomes a life full of working and keeping that is hard and frustrating. And then finally what we see is that will all physically die. And that spiritual death has come as well. But in the middle of all of that, Genesis 3.15 exists. Let's read it. God is talking to the serpent here. He's doling out the curses. And he comes to Genesis 3.15. We see God's quote here. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So here's what this means for us. Hope came when God promised to rescue us anyway. Hope came when God promised to rescue us anyway. We saw that hopelessness came when we disobeyed God. But here hope comes when God promises to rescue us anyway. In the midst of the pronouncement of great hopelessness, Adam and Eve stand here no doubt ashamed and guilt-stricken. They receive this great promise of a head crusher to come. They receive hope. Imagine it with me for a moment. Now, I don't know if this is how it played out, but I could see that this is the way it played out, and so we'll just walk down this road for a moment. Adam and Eve banished from the garden, walking away from the garden into an unknown world. They're full of shame and guilt and despair. I imagine that they find this place to settle It's getting dark, and so they build a fire, and they're gathering around the fire, and they're reflecting on their day, but they're silent. There's no words, there's no movements, just sitting and staring. You probably know the feeling. And I imagine as they're replaying God's parting words in their head, these curses, I imagine that one of them raises their head, and a slight grin comes on their face and the other looks and notices like what what are you what are you thinking about to which the one replies do you remember god's word to the serpent yeah what about it no do you do you remember the details of of what he said well he said the serpent would be despised all of his days yeah but go go on Thinking about it for a minute, I think that a smile begins to show across the other's face as well. And this one replies, He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. The word he there has a certain person in mind and you shall bruise his heel. And the one says, God's not going to allow this to be our destiny forever. To which the other replies, he's he's going to save us. And he's going to use our offspring to do it. I imagine that in the middle of deep sorrow and great remorse, no doubt, Adam and Eve recalled the words of God and found hope in the midst of hopelessness. Though man had rebelled and sinned against God, God promised to rescue mankind from the curse of sin and death. He was going to do it through the offspring of this couple. He was going to do it through the birth of a child. What they knew right here by faith, we now know by name, and His name is Jesus. Amen? Jesus is God's very own Son. He's He's going to come later in the Bible and be conceived by the Holy Spirit to the Virgin Mary. He's going to be born in ultimate humility, not in the presence of kings, but as the king in a manger. No one notices. Not even the donkey in the movie The Star, which was so good. He would come He would be born with no appearance of royalty in a stable manger among the sights and sounds and smells of farm animals. He would come not to be served, but to be a servant to others. He would come with a mission, as we've seen in John so so well. He would come with a mission from God the Father, and He would not take one breath. He would not take one step, one action that the Father had not already ordained. His mission was to reveal as John 1 says, the very glory of God to all of mankind and to give us His life as a ransom for many. Perhaps there's not a better description of what we're talking about today than Isaiah chapter 53. You can turn there if you want. I'll gladly read it to us. As I read, just try to listen to these words. Who has believed that he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Here we go. For he grew up, talking about Christ, before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him he's not blonde hair blue-eyed handsome jesus all right wasn't much blonde hair and blue eyes on this part of the world during that time he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not surely stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He's perfect. Now listen to 10 through 12 here. Yet it was the will of the Lord to keep his promise to Adam and Eve and crush him. their iniquities. Therefore, God says, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Christ came. Christ comes. His father crushes him under his wrath for sin. Christ bears the load of sin and death on Him that was intended for us. And in doing it, in doing it, He receives an inheritance of people, folks. This is huge. People who were cut off, cast away from the garden forever. Christ comes. God withholds, He forbears His wrath on humanity so that Christ can come and die for us. But He must first be born as a baby in a manger. He must first be seen. He must first do miracles and teach things and show. He must first fulfill hundreds of prophecies from the Old Testament so that there's no denying this is Him. And He dies for us, and He wins for Himself an inheritance of people, all who will place their faith in Christ. It says that Christ looks forward to enjoying forever. What an incredible exchange. He comes, He lives, He dies, He rises according to the plan of God the Father. This was the fulfillment of a promise made thousands of years earlier to a couple who had been broken by their own rebellion and sin. The execution of this plan required God to kill His own son so that a rebellious and sinful people could receive God's righteousness. God's righteousness then brings peace with God to us, but it also fills us with hope for a final and full redemption of all of creation by Jesus Christ. So it's true. It's true that we've all received physical and spiritual death as a result of Adam's sin. It is true. That's the grim news of the gospel. But the beautiful news, the reason it's called the gospel, the reason it's called the good news is because it's also true that God kept his promise to Adam and Eve, that he crushed the head of the serpent by crushing his son so that we can receive physical and spiritual life. So, though we won't live forever in this life, Jesus promised to return and gather his people for eternal life with him in heaven. And so for now, by God's grace and through faith in Christ, we can know spiritual life. We can live the rest of our days, however long they may be, whatever the Lord sees fit to grant to us. We can live those days with hope. For a day where God will make all things right at the return of His Son. Jesus says as much in John chapter 14. We'll get there in our study in John. It may be a while. But He says this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. And My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? No. He can be trusted. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. To which Thomas replies, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says to Thomas, to his disciples there, And to us today, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. The first advent, the first coming of Christ as a child fulfills the promise of Genesis 3. And and now you and I can know peace with God and hope for final redemption. We can know this by placing our faith in Jesus, the Son of God, the promised Savior. When you receive Jesus as your Lord, you receive the very grace of God. If you remember, John told us in John chapter 1, as he's introducing us to Jesus, here's who He is. He says that in Him, we've received grace upon grace. That's the shortened version of saying you've received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace grace to infinity. It it never ends. But grace is two things for you. It's two things. We often only consider one thing because it's, it's just natural. The second one's unnatural. It's what grace does in us. But the first is this. Grace is... God's unmerited favor towards you. This means that God saves you by His grace. It means that you've done nothing to earn it. We see this in Ephesians 2 where he says, for by grace you've been saved and not of your works. It's not of your own doing because if it was, you would boast in yourself and not in Jesus. So it must be grace that you're saved by. So when I say that God saves you, What I mean is that God casts your sin as far as the east is from the west. And you know that those two never come into contact. When I say that God saves you, I mean that when God looks at you and your faith is in His Son, Jesus, He does not see your sin. He sees the perfect, spotless righteousness of His beloved Son covering you. Grace also means that you have received, this is the second thing, it means that you have received power from on high to live for Jesus. You are saved by grace and you are kept by grace. You are given power to live for Jesus by God's grace. What that means is that in the midst of a hopeless world, you have the fullness of hope inside of you. When the world looks grim and dark and bleak, or when your life begins to kind of swallow you whole, you have unending hope available to you because of Christ. Unending grace-powered strength available to you because of Jesus Receiving God's grace by faith means that nothing, nothing can separate you from His loving hands. That the God who made a promise thousands of years ago to Adam and His depraved, sinful nature, that I'm not going to leave you this way, there will be an offspring to come. When He makes that promise, He keeps it. Amen. And when Romans 8 tells us that you are more than conquerors if you are in Christ Jesus, that there is nothing in this world that can separate you from the love of God, that's a promise that God has made to you because of your faith in Christ, because of the work that Christ has performed and the grace that you've received and the faith that that's instigated. He's made that promise and he's keeping that promise. You can trust him, he's good. In fact, He's the only thing we can trust. So, this is what the first advent was all about. (laughs) Praise God! This is the good news of Christ loving, stupid, sinful people like you and me. And we need that. We need that. Let's not think we're awesome. Let's think that God is awesome. Amen? I love you guys. Why don't you stand to your feet this morning?